Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Is How I Find My Peace. On this episode of Color, I'm talking to my friend Jarrett about the first Color Coalition. The Color Coalition was started by the Black Panther Party in Chicago, and Jarrett and I researched the coalition. And today we're going to be talking about what we found most interesting. Hope you enjoy. Anyways, Jarrett, um, so you're, you're a mechanical engineering major. You go to CCNY, right? Yep, 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 I do. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your frat? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so, you know, like I said, I go to City College in New York, um, and I am a part of Alpha Phi Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, it's the first Black Greek letter organization founded in the world. Um, it's important to say Greek lettered because, of course, there are other like Black groups that have been founded before, but mm-hmm. specifically one for like college students. Um, you know that that uses Greek uh, letters is is very significant in that case. But um, one thing I think is very just I don't know, impactful about Alpha is just the fact that it's kind of like a breeding ground for activism, if it makes sense. Like once you put okay. enough people together, right? And I say that just because I think all of Greek life, Black Greek life in particular, is like a breeding ground for activism because, you know, if you think about a lot of like the early movements, a lot of, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, et cetera, like it's a lot of these college age, like Black youth. Um, and other youth, I think we're going to talk about that Rainbow Coalition mm-hmm. later, but, you know, just other youth who really just get educated. And I think college is a place where that education or re-education happens. Um, and so when you put these organizations together with certain types of people who, you know, they, they want to increase their network, they want to, you know, they, they want to become, like, they're the first people in their, you know, in their family to go to college and do all these things, um, that they really just kind of see this opportunity to to um, you know, for their community. And again, it's a community-based organization, you know, with the goal of not only like building up Black men, but also, you know, those Black men going back to their community and, and doing the work that's necessary. Um, what's extremely irrelevant, I think, for this conversation is that, mm-hmm. you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, is one of the most well-known, you know, alpha men. Oh, really? At least of our generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have people oh. like Thurgood Marshall, um, did the W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, tons of just men like that who are all part of the fraternity. Who just you know go after these <laughs> go go for these uh you know the, these moments in time to to do what they can to better their community, um and it's something that I definitely believe and you know most everyone in my fraternity also believes as well, uh which is something that I think is really cool. Wow, I did not know that. And so, how many is it? It's just in the U.S. or is it in the world? Like, how many colleges have this? I don't know the exact number of colleges, uh-huh. um, but I do know it's all around the. It's it is all around the world. 
um, you know, we, we have, we're actually the first black fraternity as well to, uh, get a chapter outside of the U S our uh, third chapter was in, uh, you know, it was in, was in Canada. And so, you know, we just, we just constantly are, we're all around everywhere. People can start chapters and, you know, different parts of the world if they choose to. And so we have it in like West Africa and like Europe, um, you know, places like that. We have, you know, chapters all around the world. Wow. That is yeah. so, so amazing. Thank um, you. So, so one thing um, I like to ask people on this um, is for them to tell me about their brownness. Mm-hmm. I think often when we think about our, our brownness, we sometimes don't think about the beauty and culture uh, behind it. Mm-hmm. And we only think about the like adversities that we face. Um, so can you tell me about your heritage? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my mom is uh, Haitian American, uh, <laughs> born in Haiti. She immigrated here when she was a child. And then uh, my dad is black American. So, you know, he's like descendants of slaves. Um, mm-hmm. from South Carolina in that area um, you know that's what's an initial like that's like my mom and my dad but it definitely breaks down um, especially me understanding my blackness from a young age to to now is just you know I, my grandmother's Cuban right so she was born in Cuba and on my mom's side she was born in Cuba and she was able to kind of like you know escape uh, Cuba when it was like I guess this is like the 19. 19- 30s uh 1930s or so she was you know still a kid at the time but she Mm. escaped cuba you know to get to haiti and of course that's where she met um my grandfather but you know like understanding that cuba is like you know it's a of course it's a hispanic country but Mm. also like also like a black country right like the majority of cubans especially all the cubans that live there now are black and Mm. you know like understanding that like oh yeah like my grandmother is cuban you know she's hispanic but she's also you know, like a black woman as well at the same time is really interesting. Um, and then also you know, having uh, some Native American on my dad's side as well. That's kind of, <laughs> I guess that's my heritage. My, oh, that's really, name. really cool. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, so for this conversation, we both researched the Rainbow Coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and before I ask you what you found most interesting, I just wanted to read um, the blurb of a documentary I watched. I watched the Rainbow Coalition. Okay. So, uh, actually, it's called the first Rainbow Coalition. Yes, I saw um, that. Yeah, did you watch it? I didn't. I didn't watch it. I just saw like some clips yeah. and stuff, but I didn't watch the whole thing. It, yeah, it's it's really good. Um, I highly recommend it. You can watch it on PBS. It's like totally free. So if okay. anyone's interested, go right ahead. You can just log onto their website, um, and you don't need to have cable or anything. It's just completely free. Um, but I just thought I'd read the blurb of the film because I think it gives a good synopsis of like what the whole movement was. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1969, the Chicago Black Panther Party began to form alliances across lines of race and ethnicity with other community-based uh, movements in the city, including the Latino group, the Young Lords Organization, and the Southern Whites of the Young Patriots. Mm-hmm. So they banded together in one of the most segregated cities in post-war America to collectively confront issues such as police brutality and substandard housing, and they call themselves the Rainbow Coalition. Um, and a lot of these groups did start out as gangs, and I think that we hear a lot about this kind of mm-hmm. all these gangs. But what's really mm-hmm. incredible is that they turned into amazing, amazing community organizers. And they did such, such incredible things. I think that we can learn so much from them. And that whole part of that history, like, isn't really talked about. Like, yeah. I found out that the Black Panthers started the breakfast program. For yes. Time, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then it was institutionalized by the government. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, they'll never tell you that. Like, like, of course, what? of course not. No, yeah. they don't want to. I was like, that's incredible. Like, why don't I know this? And then, so uh, one great thing about this, too, is... Um, it's documented pretty well, I think. Like, if you go on YouTube, you can see actual clips. Um, like, the Black Panthers went to um, 
a community of impoverished whites. These were whites that came mm-hmm. from the South, that came from the Appalachia, and they were looking for um, better opportunities, and they actually just found more poverty in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Black Panthers go to to this community, and they literally are like, what do you need? Um, how can we bend the, the gap between us? How can we help you? How can we all work together? And you can see, like, at the beginning of the video, like, it's literally a room full of white people, and it's um, Bobby Lee, who's one of the Black Panthers. Yeah. Um, and, like, it looks kind of uncomfortable, and by the end of it, they're all shaking hands and hugging, and it's literally incredible. That's beautiful. Um, literally. Um, but so what did you find most interesting? <clears throat> no, I think... Just from all, all of my research, I feel like I wasn't aware of like the Young Lords having been a a a um a gang beforehand. Like I know I'd always heard like about that everything was like, you know, everyone was uh you know, they had come from some kind of gangs. I even heard a lot about that the Bloods and the Crips um actually came out of the the Black Panthers when they actually were dissolved and, and things like that. Like I heard I heard so much. I was like, oh, okay, this kind of makes sense. But I feel like just what surprised me was just realizing like how Chicago, you know, just being what it was with, you know, the riots and everything that was going on, just seeing how they were so impoverished to the point that the only people who were fighting for the liberation of the people had to be gang members. And I think that's kind of telling of just how, like, the, you know, like the political entities of the time, right, the mayor, the politicians, et cetera, just really did not care about these communities in such an institutional level. And I feel like what it shows me is something that I feel like I've known for so long, where it's like people always want to talk about how, you know, slavery and prejudice and racism are are so far away, right? Like the Black mm-hmm. Panther Party and like the Civil Rights Movement was in the 1960s, right? This was like the end of the 1960s, if we're being honest. So this is only about like 60 years ago. Yeah. Right. Like, like this is this is extremely recent. And so people always want to say about how, oh, everything is so far away. Like all this happened. It's like, no, these are your grandparents. Like these are your parents. Like your parents were the kids who were throwing rocks at at black kids and other kids or just sitting there watching it happen. And I think things like this always kind of remind me of just like everything here. It's it's not distant. It's not far away in any way, shape or form. Like this is all extremely recent. Yeah. Um. I also think like when the documentary started out, when I was watching it, mm-hmm. they, they, one of the first things they started talking about was police brutality. Yes. And I was like, this is the same thing we're marching for right now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it never <laughs> changes. I was like, I was just at this march. Mm-hmm. Um, but just about the young Lords. And you talked about how, um, like at first they were, they had to be gangs. Like they had to yeah, be forceful. Exactly. Like nobody was going to listen to them any other way. But um, mm-hmm. Jose Jimenez, who started the, um, yes. who, and he was a, a co-founder. He, they called him Chacha of the um, yeah. <laughs> Young Lords organization. Yeah. He, um, he said at one point that they went into a meeting and it was like all these white people and they were making these uh, deciding like factors on what would happen in this like Puerto Rican community. And they mm-hmm. walked into the meeting and they were like, no, you're not going to make any more decisions unless we see some more diversity on this like board. Okay. Um, and then he said, to prove our point, we started to throw chairs around. Like that's literally what they had to do. I love um, that. Oh yeah. goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and like the communities, like they were they were really defined, like redlining. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it was kept. Like you didn't go into other communities because like those people would beat you. Like that was literally yes. just how it was. Um, and so they would go into like the Italian community and they would go to the deli and they would demand to be served like yeah and I just think about how like I mean the way I kind of just like walk around and I go wherever I want and I'm like you know people fought for this like everything I do you know someone fought for me to be able to be here to do this you know 
No, absolutely. I think that's I think that's a great point. Like I even have stories of my mom telling me, you know, she she was, you know, in like middle school and stuff like that, high school in Brooklyn in New York. And you know, there's certain parts of Brooklyn she couldn't go to, where she would literally go to certain parts of Brooklyn by accident or something, and like there would be white kids there who would throw rocks at her. And this mm-hmm. was and, and this was not long ago. This is like the 1960s, 1970s in New York, right? Where mm-hmm. like you literally were not allowed to go to certain neighborhoods, right? Like Mount Vernon, where I live, you know, was a, a, an all Italian neighborhood, and because black home ownership was rising in Mount Vernon, all the realtors decided to tell all of the different, you know, people living in the areas, like, hey, like your property value is going to go down, you got to get out. And so there was like, you know, that white flight where all the Italians left Mount Vernon. And, you know, parts of Westchester and either went further north, they went to Long Island and Staten Island. And it's just like, you know, you see these things where it's just like, you know, either people are are too afraid to interact or they just refuse to interact and integrate in any way. Um, And I think just kind of like off of what you said earlier a little bit is like, you know, we're fighting for the exact same things. They have to be forceful. I think, you know, you know, how I feel about it is different, you know, (laughs) but I think it's a very important question that people are asking of like, can we afford to still be like entirely like peaceful and cordial and nice and sweet with everything you know what I mean I think uh yeah I think it's huge I think James Baldwin was one of the people who said that you know like riots you know and James Baldwin and Martha King you know they all shared similar thoughts but they all said that riots you know riots are the is is the what's the quote I believe it's like riots is the voice of the unheard or, or riots or the is the descent of like the unheard and it's just like you know you see these things happen these these big moments of violence and i'm just like the violence would be necessary if there was listening and communication in the first place and sometimes it becomes oh, yeah. like is violence necessary for like the underrepresented to be heard and i think that's mm-hmm. sometimes like a, a crazy question i ask myself where i'm like whew, everyone wants peace everyone wants you know no violence ever but is that always going to be the solution Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. Do you Mm -hmm. think it all is like what I'm hearing is it's kind of like pushing someone into a corner and then like getting mad when they react, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You can't you can't put someone in a cage, beat them up every single day. And then when they finally decide to like punch you back, you can't be like, oh, my God, this is unacceptable. Like, how, how did you do this? This is so horrible. And it's like, yeah, all violence is bad, but you can't just look at one side of the violence. Like, (laughs) you know? Yeah, also, like, like, um, they were talking about how, like, Fred Hampton was literally Mm. shot point blank while he was asleep. Yeah. And I'm like, have police ever said, like, has there ever been, like, any sort of speech, any sort of, like, we're sorry for everything that we did? Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is that, like, you know, there's always faux apologies. They say, like, oh, this might not happen. But the FBI already had to release their records of how you can literally go online and see how the FBI admits to having like taken down and you know in- interjected into the the Black Panther party to remove them like they saw them as a political threat because they were causing you know dissent in the country and so they literally you know had a, like an entire like uh, you know assassination project like this was this is intentional it was done on purpose in order to to stop the dissent in the nation and it worked to a degree which I think something really mm-hmm. interesting. I, I don't want to get off topic at all, but I'll just say this quickly. But um, mm-hmm. one thing I think is really cool is that, the, you know, the Black uh, Black Lives Matter BLM movement, um, the way it is now, right, it's like chapters. And like the chapters, you know, are kind of kind of independent in different states and cities where they can do what they want. But, you know, you still communicate like the greater organization to some degree. But they really empower the organization to be chapters and forming chapters and, you know, kind of run themselves on their own. 
because of what happened with the Black Panthers, right? Having one monolithic leadership means that if there's ever a government like insurgents again, where they decide to, you know, like infiltrate these organizations and spy and then murder the leaders, that they can't do so in a way that's as damaging to the movement as when the leaders of the Black Panthers um, were assassinated. So that there's no like, you know, centralized leadership for organizations oh, wow. either spread out. And so it's like, you know, having to learn, having to understand that is so, it, it's sad at the end of the day where it's like a fight for, you know, equality results in more oppression. And <laughs> it's really, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, I just think it's so shocking that at no point, like, it feels like, mm-hmm. like police today don't internalize the part that they yeah. play in systemic racism and i'm like at some part like you need it like you have to address yeah. that it's crazy um so what do you think that what do you think we can take away from learning about this today i know we kind of touched on this already yeah i think a big thing is like community organizing um do you think mm. that like um i guess like uh organize organizations um like just can learn something from like what happens with black panthers then yeah i really think uh it's just understanding, you know, who the enemy is sometimes, you know, the enemies mm-hmm. of progress. I think, I think being focused on, on who those people are and understanding where is the power that's necessary for change because things haven't changed as much as they should have. Right. And so it's okay. If things haven't changed much, is it that, you know, the people don't want change is that the people are against it or is it that, you know, the people in power, right, officials, the people who are, you know, leading like the police force and, you know, the people who are in Senate positions, are, are these the people who, you know, whose positions that we need to switch, right? Are these, are these, I, think, mm-hmm. I think the focus becomes like, we need to focus on, like put our efforts and our energies different places. Because organizing without, you know, a, a firm vision in mind is what always, you know, ends up in like no change actually happening. That's one of the biggest things the Black Panther, you know, were fighting for. And that's what they were seeing so dangerous because they're a political party. Right. They, they were trying to lobby and get people into office. They were trying to, you know, forcibly they were trying to force like different like leaders to get out of to get out of office that were already there. Like they're they're given responsibility for having gotten the first black mayor of Chicago elected. Right. It's like all of these things are, are because of these movements on the ground. And that's when they become dangerous. And so I think it shows like groups today that the focus needs to be on getting people elected. And I think that that's kind of been understood. I think that it's been seen mm. that people are understanding that these races on the on the um, local level is becoming, there's a lot more attention on social media. There's a lot more attention from organizations. There's lots more effort put in to endorsing candidates who support the ideas of different groups um, that are organizing today. Yeah. And I think that's where the real lesson needs to be taken from is that, you know, you can, you know, rah, 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 talk to the people in power and tell them to change things, or you can become the people in power and change them yourself. That's actually so funny that you say that. I have a book right next to me called um, Run for... Oh, Don't Just March, Run for yes, Something. And yes. it's got Amanda Littman. Such an incredible book. Do you know what? <laughs> this is actually, I might be like being annoyingly suspicious. Oh, goodness. But I went with James actually mm-hmm. to um, The Strand in the city and we were like looking at books. And I saw this book um, and it was kind of like earlier into like me getting into like um, this podcast mm-hmm. and into like activism within like you know the marches that are going around where um i am um i saw this book and i was like oh you know that kind of looks interesting and i was like i don't know i don't know and i put it back and i walked away and it slid off the shelf wow that's a sign (laughs) that's a sign you got you (laughs) needed to get it (laughs) but i got it but but it's such a it's such an interesting book and it really like it literally just shows you like how to run for Mm -hmm. office and like 
almost like every chapter literally says like just do it like yes. just run yes. for it like, if you want to be if you want to see that change like you know marching and organizing that's all great but we need people that think like you know like we want to mm-hmm. see in office like that's what's going to ultimately change it um and uh, yeah I, I do think you're right i think people are like finally understanding that but you know i i, I think that's something that we can educate younger people absolutely. on a lot more absolutely i think the fact mm-hmm. that more people of color are going to college and more people are going to college every day is also helping in that fight right because people are becoming educated in the fact that public school is miseducating them and it, it's really it's yeah. ridiculous Mm-hmm. I've, I've also I've said this a lot on the podcast but I'm like never gonna stop saying it because I think mm-hmm. it's like probably the most profound idea I've ever had <laughs> I used to think that when I walk if I walk into a room and no one in there looks like me that I didn't belong in the room mm-hmm. but I know now that if I go into a room and no one in there looks like me then that room needs me they that. need my voice and they need my opinions and I you know it's easier said than done of course, of course. I do have to tell myself that sometimes um you know, I'm like the only woman of color working in a lab, uh, mainly of like white men. So, <laughs> you know, I do walk in a lot of days and I'm like, they need my voice, you know, they need my opinion. And like, they're always like welcoming, but it's also breaking that like those projections that you have, like that you just push on like the world outside yes. of you um, and that you were built up to believe um, and that maybe when you were younger, um, people like... Um, somehow like you know instilled in absolutely. you just like racism and society that you've just absorbed you absolutely. know um yeah it takes effort to like break it down and reject it when you get older yeah one thing i heard is like uh it's kind of related to that they, i heard someone say that d- distance brings fear distance breeds fear um and there was there was another part of it that's the part that's really important is that like when when you're not there when when you have no exposure to people of color or like people who are different from you in different ways whether they're trans or you know whatever it is that's that's, that's you know like that's weird to you about them right it makes this thing of like this mm-hmm. fear of like oh you're not human you're the other right this otherizing is a is a very well documented thing in like psychology of like the power of making someone mm-hmm. the other right of them and and why mm-hmm. that little language is, is so dangerous and I think exactly what you're saying a hundred percent. Like being in those spaces, you have so much influence, you know, over like kind of the perspectives people have as well. Like you're needed, your perspective is needed, not just for work, but also for the social too. Can you say that last bit again? Oh, (laughs) yeah, I was saying like you're needed, not just for like, you know, of course, like the work and, you know, having a a different opinion, differing opinion there, but also Mm -hmm. just for the Mm -hmm. social, right? Of them understanding like, okay, wow, like this, you know, people like this exist. Right, because people just mm-hmm. sometimes just don't know, and it's ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, one thing that I've been thinking about lately too, with this like election that like seems to have finally ended. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Every time we're seeing these uh, articles about how Trump claims he's still president, I, I don't even know. Oh, oh yeah. my goodness. Oh, I like. I mean the confidence of like no. uh, just an old white man. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's just like no <laughs> <laughs> unfettered. It's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, wild. Um, but um, one thing that I've been thinking about is like that election was too close. Yes. Like, yes. You know. Um, and I think we need to address like you know sometimes I get nervous because um like I grew up in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And in Brooklyn, it was like everything was diverse, not just even in like ethnicities. It was diverse in like music and the shows and the Mm -hmm. theater and like everything that you're exposed to, you know. Um, And then I went to high school in Pennsylvania and it was completely different. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
when we're in the city and when we're, when we're around people who are all, you know, um, really accepting and we're in all these places that are really inclusive, like, I don't know if that's the way it is throughout all of America. It's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not at all. <laughs> I'm, and so, like, something that I've been, like, really concerned with lately is, like, like what do I do now? Because I always feel like I need to do something specifically. And I'm like, what do what do, what does the middle of the country need from me? Like, oh goodness, what do I need to show them? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, I'm like, and that's a huge question. I don't know what I need to what needs to happen there. I don't know. I, I don't know. You know what? You know what's so interesting? A lot of my a lot of my friends organize for a few different organizations, and you know, mm-hmm. I think that question is is pretty normal. I think most people would say just focus on your community. Like it, it starts it starts with you, right? Because you know, no community is perfect mm-hmm. no matter what. Like if you saw the map. Um, sure. the election map for New York, right? New York was only blue by like fifty five percent. You know what I mean? And and the majority of that came from mm. New York City. So I think New York's population yeah. is yep. like twenty six million or something. Eight million of them are in the city, and we only won by fifty five percent. Right? The majority of the state mm-hmm. is red. The majority of near a lot of New York City was red. And so you really look at it, and you're just like, wow. Like you, you feel like it's your confidence is going to be blue, and most people are confident New York is going to be blue, but yeah. that margin is really low. Like I think I believe Obama yeah. won New York in two thousand eight by sixty one percent, and then Biden beat Trump by fifty five. You know what I mean? Like that number is a drastic change, only about twelve years later. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, like you start in your community, and then you know some organizers that they go out to the Midwest, like they, they go out and support their um, you know, their, their fellow organizers that struggle a little bit more where they literally have to fight off against like you know violent racists who who want to come up and be in their face and bring their guns and do different things so it's a, it's a wow. different it's a different kind of fight and so people will travel out there to you know to do that work and to support but i think you know starting a community is always the best bet like start where you are because if mm-hmm. everyone does that then the movement becomes you know worldwide it becomes it, it, it ends up in every community in every single you know city and state mm-hmm. and stuff like that so i always think it just it just makes sense start where you are do the work you can, bring awareness, and then if you can support, go out. Like who was I think uh, it was mm-hmm. um, Cha Cha had uh, had met um you know had met Fred Hampton because they came over to Chicago. Like they went they, oh, yeah. and they see they see, they they seek them out. They found him, they met him, and then that's how you know they were able to get involved. And so sometimes it really just takes yeah. like getting up and going over there. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually I'm staring at a. I wrote a quote mm-hmm. down from Fred Hampton, and he said. Um, how can you go all the way to Vietnam without first going through the West Side of mm-hmm, Chicago? Mm-hmm. Great um, quote. So just listening to what you're Great saying, quote. that yeah, that literally, I'm staring at that. I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, why do you think we're just learning about this? Like, why don't we know this? Yeah, so it's, and I think the most important. There's so many answers to this question, but the most important one is that's intentional, uh-huh. right? It's it's done on purpose. Yeah. I think white guilt isn't discussed enough as it needs to. And I think that white people in general, and I'll specifically talk about white people, you know, there are are races all around who need to be called out, but I'm specifically going to talk about white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's just like that white guilt is, uh, is very real. I think that there's uh, a, a culture of shame around how black people and other people of color have been treated in this country. And I think that America would rather ignore the fact that it exists than to bring awareness to it and come to terms with it right like if you look at company mm-hmm. uh, countries like germany and stuff like that they were forced to come to terms with the fact that they were nazis right like they have to understand yeah. that this is what happened they learn about it in school they learn about their role and then they're told like this was bad 
and we should do everything in our power to avoid getting back into fascism. And and, and yeah, they teach you know, us. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's funny that you bring that up too because I was thinking about that because I learned about the Holocaust mm-hmm. pretty I think every year. Of course, yeah, of every year, like every year, yeah, every single year. Um, and and they always said and they and they used to bring in survivors and they always said the reason we teach it is so that it never happens yes. again. But I'm like, what about the stuff that happened mm-hmm. here? Like, why don't we do the same thing with that? You know? Exactly. It's because of, it's because of shame and the fact that slavery is not illegal. Like slavery has mm-hmm. never been illegal, <laughs> right? Like slavery is still legal mm-hmm. today. Like if you see, I think it was in Utah. They had a, I think it was like constitute, it was like amendment to their state constitution, like part B or something like that. And they basically are saying, let's remove, uh, you know, the, the, the punishment of slavery for certain crimes uh, from, our con- from our state constitution. And this was this year during this election cycle. And I think it was like a, a million people voted yes to remove it. And then like 250,000 voted no. And it's just kind of like, you see that even today. And the 13th Amendment says that slavery is illegal unless it's punishment for a crime. Slavery never stopped, oh. right? Like, slavery literally, oh, it's like, yeah. and it's, and so, it's so funny. The exactly. Because the whole thing was yeah. like, okay, if we can't make them slaves just because they're here, we can arrest them for anything we want and then make them slaves literally again. Anything. And so it's just kind of, literally exactly. Anything. And so it's just shame. Like, they don't want to talk about it because it's, it's sad. I forgot what state it was. I think it was Wisconsin or, or something like that. Um, I took AP US history mm-hmm. in high school, and that's where I learned a lot about just kind of the the inhumanity of like you know Charles um, of like Christopher Columbus and like all of these different people who uh, you know were prominent people in American history and about slavery and the horrors of slavery. Like I learned about all of it in AP US, and I was like, oh my god, like America's horrible. And in Wisconsin, wow, I, they literally banned yeah. it. They banned the class in Wisconsin. I forgot. It was something that starts with W. So it might not be Wisconsin. I don't want to be quoted there. But one of these states, it was literally when I was taking my AP test, <laughs> they banned it because they were like, we, it gives America too much of a negative light. And then the students were like fighting against it. Like, we want the college credit. And they didn't care. And they still banned it. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> wow. That's great. I took an, an AP government uh-huh. class and we just learned about like like we it was totally different. We did not learn about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just you learn like you just you learn a lot and I'm just like and I feel like I learned so much from there, but it's like in, in most history classes we just go over slavery, like slavery was bad. In Texas, in some school like some books, they say that some slaves were paid. They say that slaves were paid and that some of these slaves may were, were chose to do this. Like they literally say it verbatim that like slavery was a choice or that slaves were paid. And it's just like, or they don't call them paid, they call them slaves. And it's just like, people get away with this and you literally are miseducating entire generations of people to make them think that slavery is not that big a deal or that it didn't even happen or that slaves enjoyed it. You know, and it's, it's yeah, insane. And, yeah, that's, that's insane because these people grow up and then they go out in the world and they don't exactly. realize this history. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That is so crazy. Um, well, thank you so much, Jarrett, for being Absolutely. here. Um, where can we find you? Do you want to share your social media? Uh, sure. I guess on uh, Instagram, I am I am J Wyatt W Y A T T. I don't have a website or anything, but I guess that's my Instagram. <laughs> IG, you know how it goes. <laughs> Follow me, like my picture. Hope you enjoyed this episode of This Is How I Find My Peace. Don't forget to follow on Instagram at This Is How I Find My Peace. Also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to leave a review because it helps people find the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.